Good evening. Uh, I am Professor Lloyd Ambrosius. Uh, it is my uh, privilege as chair of the program committee to welcome you to the uh, Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. Uh, founded by Ian Jack Thompson and later named in his honor, uh, the forum is designed to engage uh, the University of Nebraska community and the general public uh, in important issues affecting all of us uh, in the contemporary world. We are grateful to the Thompson family and the uh, Cooper Foundation for their generous support uh, for this lecture series. We also thank the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable TV uh, Channel 21, KRNU Radio, and the University Bookstore for their support. This evening's lecture, Washington and the World in the Age of Obama, is by Susan Glasser, the new editor of Politico magazine. Previously, she was editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy, the magazine of global politics, economics, and ideas. During her tenure at its helm, foreign policy won numerous awards for its innovative coverage, including three digital national magazine awards. Before becoming its editor, Glasser covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as a foreign correspondent and editor at the Washington Post. She was also editor of Roll Call, uh, the newspaper of Capitol Hill. With her husband, Peter Baker, she co-authored the book, Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. Uh, she is a Harvard uh, University graduate. After the lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker by writing them on cards made available to you by the ushers. Now, join me in welcoming Susan Glasser to Nebraska. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor, and thank you to all of you who've come out here this evening. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the invitation not only to come here to Nebraska for the first time, but in particular to address the Thompson Forum, which has a, a distinguished, I think, and, and well-deserved history of attracting really first-rate thinkers and leaders in the world of international affairs, and so I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that tradition. Uh, and so I'm going to skip my obligatory uh, comment here about the virtues of big red football and skip uh, right to uh, the more somber subject of uh, world affairs in the age of Obama. And for that, I thank you in advance. And I'm, I should say as well that I'm looking forward to all of your questions uh, and to really having a conversation around these subjects as well. But I thought, given the subject, it might be good to start with a little bit of a cautionary tale. Exactly two years ago, more or less, I got a phone call one day in my office at Foreign Policy from Kurt Campbell, who was at the time the top US diplomat for East Asia and a close advisor to Hillary Clinton. I've got something really big for you, uh, Kurt Campbell said, and I hope you don't mind, but I've taken the liberty of telling Secretary Clinton that you'll publish it. Well, of course, I was a little bit worried, truthfully. Uh, the journalist and editor in me wondered what exactly was it that he had promised? Oh no, what if it was some boring op-ed or some tedious account of the Law of the Sea Treaty or something? Uh, but no, no, he insisted, this is big, really. Uh, it turned out that uh, Hillary Clinton and President Obama would be announcing a major, quote-unquote, pivot to Asia in American foreign policy. And this will be the article, Kurt Campbell said, in which we lay out this strategic shift. Well, of course I said yes. Many thousands of words and painstakingly negotiated drafts later, Clinton's article did in fact appear in Foreign Policy magazine, and it was indeed big news. The future of politics, she wrote in the magazine, is in Asia. And rather than returning home after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States would need to shift its gaze there, to Asia, quote unquote, to pivot to new global realities. 
in the world's fastest growing and most dynamic region. The article ended with this observation. This kind of pivot, Secretary of State Clinton wrote, is not easy, but we have paved the way for it over the past two and a half years, and we are committed to seeing it through as among the most important diplomatic efforts of our time. Flash forward two years. There's just one problem. The pivot to Asia doesn't exist. When Barack Obama traveled to the United Nations just a couple weeks ago to outline his vision of the world in 2013, Asia, with its billions of people, its fast-growing economies, its many security challenges, warranted just a single sentence. That's right, one sentence. This week, President Obama was supposed to be in Asia, holding forth at the annual APEC summit, traveling to Malaysia, the Philippines, and Indonesia, Instead, of course, the messy realities of American politics, of a government shutdown, and the prospect of an even more economically disastrous debt limit vote forced him to cancel the trip. Instead, who showed up at APEC? Russian President Vladimir Putin? China's new leader, Xi Jinping? The headlines were predictable and damaging, as you could imagine. If global politics are sometimes treated as a zero-sum game, China was the winner, and the United States was the loser. As President Obama said in his, whole, in his press conference earlier this afternoon, the whole world is watching this one. Meanwhile, aside from congressional gridlock, that is, Obama's foreign policy couldn't be farther away from Asia and the pivot that he invoked just two years ago. How can we best sum up American foreign policy today, as has so often been the case over the last decade? the Middle East, the Middle East, and the Middle East. So that's why I'm calling this a cautionary tale. My advice to all of those in the audience is very simple. Beware pundits or even secretaries of state bearing grand sweeping policy pronouncements, especially when it comes to American foreign policy. Next time you read about the Obama doctrine for the United States in the world, think again before accepting it as reality. In his five years in office, there have been many, many such Obama doctrines proclaimed. They are invariably wrong and contradictory. He's against the use of force, except when he is. He's for multilateralism, except when he isn't. He's a realist with an idealist streak. He's a non-interventionist. Google the phrase Obama doctrine, and guess what? You'll come up with 23 million or so hits. Very few of them are compatible. Even the president's own description of his doctrine can vary wildly, and not just on the question of whether we're pivoting to Asia or not. Perhaps, in a way, we should be thankful that we haven't heard more. It would be just wrong or misleading or both. Think about back in 2008 when Obama first arrived on the scene, when he pledged to stop the rise of the seas, end nuclear weapons, reinvent American diplomacy by talking to America's enemies and not just its friends, all while ending the Iraq war, showing how to do the war in Afghanistan right, embracing multilateral institutions, and transforming our economy. Even with recent developments, he's not exactly going to be batting a thousand there. So perhaps Obama has just learned to avoid grand plans and big visions, sweeping rhetoric and the heightened expectations that come along with it. After all, in the campaign he waged just last year for re-election, you could be forgiven if you missed the part of the campaign where he outlined his foreign policy agenda for the second term. It just wasn't there, unless killing Osama bin Laden counts as a program. A few decades ago, British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan was asked about his foreign policy program. Events, my dear fellow, he reportedly said, events. Well, over the last few weeks, a fairly dramatic set of events has occurred, and they do in fact suggest that Obama is in the midst of what could end up being the most significant period of diplomacy in his presidency. Just two months ago, none of it seemed remotely possible. On Syria, on Iran, on Middle East peace talks, and in our dealings with Russia, the same old gridlock seemed to prevail. We were having the same conversations about negotiations that hadn't happened, about deals that weren't coming forward. And yet, these tired conversations have quickly given way to new realities 
Events, as they say, have intervened. Today, he's just had the first direct phone call between a United States leader and an Iranian leader since the 1979 revolution, and nuclear talks will resume next week. On Syria, he's working with international partners to destroy the Assad regime's chemical weapons, and on a peace conference in Geneva with the Russians the same Russians who Obama was on such bad terms with. Just a month before that, he declined even to meet with Vladimir Putin on a trip there. So while there may be no overarching Obama doctrine, I think it's fair to say we do have some ways of navigating this current set of events. But remember this, the key events are taking place right now in Washington that will influence the outcome of this diplomatic opening. The mess back in Washington makes these talks with international players like Iran and Syria even more important, not less, uh, although they may hurt President Obama's negotiating position, and more on that later. But why does it matter even more than ever? Look at the calendar. Look at the politics. Both of them intersect in a way to suggest that foreign policy is pretty much all that's left of the Obama administration. Thanks to Congress, there's certainly no domestic agenda remaining, except playing defense on Obamacare. And with the clock ticking, and every day making him closer to a lame duck, the president is already thinking legacy. He's searching for a legacy. And what do presidents do when they look for a legacy? They look overseas. That's why they spend their second terms talking about Middle East peace, every single one of them. And Obama will too, and you heard that here first. So while there may be no overarching Obama doctrine, I think it's important to keep in mind what we do know about the president. We know this for sure. He really meant it when he said he planned to withdraw from Afghanistan in, by 2014. He meant it when he said he wanted to reduce the defense budget and, as he put it, nation build here at home. We also know a lot more about Obama and his decision-making style his handling of crises than we did when he came to office a few years ago. We know that he's cautious, but occasionally willing to be very bold, that he's no crusading democracy activist, but also very far from a stay-at-home isolationist, that he means it when he says he wants to pursue a pragmatic, interest-based foreign policy, shaped not only by the national interest, but also by national capabilities, He's not the American declinists of the Republican campaign caricature, but he's also very clearly preparing America for a moment when it may still be a superpower, but a superpower that picks its fights a whole lot more carefully. And I should say that the politics really do matter here. Obama's nation building here at home slogan not only resonates with Democrats, it's popular across the political spectrum. And as Republicans have an internal war with themselves over the future direction of their party, there's a very real clash on this point between the remaining neocon hawks and internationalists, conservatives, and the rising Rand Paul isolationist wing of the party determined to avoid more messy entanglements at home. It's part of what's driving this current confrontation in Congress today, and I think you're going to hear a lot more of it. So there's an enormous, overwhelming political logic as well for the diplomatic moment that President Obama is having. This is not a time for saber rattling, and I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about this. Now, of course, clearly it rankles President Obama when he's accused of making foreign policy by inbox, by letting those events govern him. But to which I would say, that's silly. Of course he's letting events decide things. Of course he's running by inbox. President Obama criticized the Washington foreign policy establishment recently for dinging him on quote-unquote style points uh, in his recent somewhat embarrassing flip-flop over what to do about Syria. Remember when he was for military action in Syria, then he was for going to Congress, then he was for negotiating. But in fact, let's be real, it was pretty embarrassing. And style points do count for a lot in the often amorphous world of foreign policy. President Obama is reactive on foreign policy. He's also very lucky. So the truth is, in a choice between the inbox and the soapbox, 
If you want to know what President Obama is going to concentrate on, it's best to look to the inbox. That's the stuff that just won't slip. And how does the inbox look right now? Well, it looks pretty crowded. Uh, Syria is just at the top of that very crowded portfolio. And remember, this is far from resolved, even if Obama did have a lucky hand extended to him by the Russians, getting him out of the bind of having to go to Congress to approve a military action that Congress pretty clearly wasn't going to approve of. Just because that temporary crisis was averted does not mean we have a solution to Syria. More war is a likely outcome there, and even if the talks uh, in Geneva, sponsored by the Russians and the United States, proceed, they are unlikely to lead to the kind of outcome and resolution of a bloody civil war that seems to be escalating and rather declining. The issue of the chemical weapons has been segregated so far from the broader question of a country right at the heart of the Middle East that's melting down, where more than 100,000 people are dead over the last two years. And the United States, rather than having more clarity in its policy, is ever more confused as it realizes that there are a lack of reliable partners for the United States uh, among the rebel groups, and that, in fact, the strongest rebel factions that have emerged tend to be those that are the most allied with radical jihadist elements. And therefore, you know, I think our policy in many ways is as confused as it's ever been even uh, six months ago. What's next on the inbox? Iran, another diplomatic moment in the making there. As I mentioned, it was just the other day that President Obama had his historic phone call with Iranian President Rouhani. But there's a lot of question marks that remain there as well. Next week, nuclear talks will resume between the two countries. They remain pretty much gridlocked in the place that they were before this historic phone call. I think there are real questions on both sides as well about the negotiating power that Obama and Rouhani bring to the table. Many Americans are asking, is Rouhani even a credible negotiator and partner for the United States? Or does true power inside Iran and the Islamic Republic remain where it has long remained with the supreme leader? Is he willing to consider this new opening to the United States? And for their part, the Iranians undoubtedly are looking with a very skeptical eye at what's occurring uh, back in Washington, where I come from, and wondering what kind of a partner is Barack Obama for us in these negotiations? If he can't negotiate with Congress over the most basic functioning of the American government, that is, the actual functioning of the American government, can we trust Barack Obama to deliver on any deal he makes with us? Remember that any agreement we were to come to with the Iranians would almost certainly involve congressional approval to lift or to change the sanctions that have been put in place by Congress on the Iranian economy. And so unless Obama can credibly deliver Congress, I think the Iranians are also going to be going into those negotiations wondering if now is the right time for this kind of diplomatic opening or not. What else is in the inbox? Well, just to tick off a few things, and, and by the way, most of them don't involve the pivot to Asia. The Middle East peace talks, where Obama and Secretary Kerry uh, have pledged to make a major effort. And again, looking toward his legacy, of course, Obama would dearly, dearly love to be the Democratic president who was able to do what all American presidents have talked about since Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter, but have been unable to do, which is to forge a more lasting and durable peace, uh, a final stage resolution, as opposed to the interim talks and inevitable uh, delays and back and forth that have really mired the peace process in not a lot of peace and frankly, not even a lot of process over the last few years. There's then the ongoing war on terror and its dramatic return, I think, to the front pages with the horrible attack uh, just a few weeks ago in Kenya, the special forces raids launched by President Obama over the weekend, and the expanding Obama drone war in places like Yemen and from new bases across Africa. You might have thought that the war on terror was over, but in many ways, the resurgence and persistence of Al-Qaeda in new guises, in new franchises, and in new places suggests that it's morphing and mutating rather than ending as a conflict in which the United States will be involved for the foreseeable future. 
or look at the headlines today. Just as I walked in, the news came that the United States was now finally considering cutting off our aid to Egypt, uh, something that we have resisted doing uh, as the disintegration and the politics in Egypt have gotten worse and worse over the last few months. Remember the coup that we didn't quite call a coup? Well, of course, that's exactly what it was, and the, the early promise and hopes of the democratic protests in Egypt and the removal of President Hosni Mubarak have led instead uh, to turmoil, violence, and gridlock in the country, the return of military rule, conflict with the now imprisoned, uh, once again, leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so I think this is something that, uh, whether it's on the front page yesterday, it's going to be on the front page uh, of the paper tomorrow and for many days after that. And these are just front page crises that lurk in Obama's inbox. There are still others that will inevitably demand President Obama's attention, or that soon could. Call these the known unknowns, as Donald Rumsfeld so memorably put it. Think about, I mentioned the return of Al-Qaeda to front and center, but think about the spread of Al-Qaeda in regions that don't get a lot of attention here in the United States, like the Sahel and elsewhere in Africa. Think about the prospect of further state collapse in the Middle East, where unstable regimes include U.S. ally Jordan, U.S. ally Saudi Arabia, at any moment could be on the brink of yet another leadership transition. Yemen is teetering. Inevitably, not to mention running out of key resources like water. Constitutional battles could turn deadly, even in perceived success stories of the Arab Spring, like Tunisia. Iraq, the deadliest it's been since the United States exit. Libya, looking increasingly like a failed state. Or remember, if that's not enough trouble, uh, the problems that President Obama will inevitably be forced to consider and to confront in the upcoming months in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We still have tens of thousands of troops in Afghanistan and no agreement yet on what our presence will look like after the 2014 combat pullout. Never mind what kind of election will take place in Afghanistan where there's supposed to be a transition from the rule of President Hamid Karzai and there's very, very much uncertainty about whether a peaceful election can even take place, never mind what the result will look like. Or consider, what about another crisis with North Korea? It was just a few months, after all, that we were worried about being on the brink of war all over again on the Korean Peninsula, not to mention the erratic politics of its unstable young new leader, Kim Jong-un. Then there are the problems associated with weakening economies in emerging market powerhouses like China and India, plus uncertainties about political stability in both of those countries. Both China and India, of course, were the big drivers of growth in the previous decade, not to mention pulling the world through uh, after the economic crisis in the United States in 2008 and across Europe. What if we can't count on them going forward to drive world economic growth? And these are just some of the challenges in the potential inbox for President Obama. I haven't spoken at all about a much broader category of both opportunities as well as challenges that confront Obama that have to do with the transforming world. And in the end, that may be the much more significant foreign policy agenda to think about in Barack Obama's second term. Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, was fond of saying that our leaders are required to focus on the headlines and the trend lines. And these are the trend lines that I'm talking about. They're very different than the who's up and who's down conversation that usually prevails in Washington. When we talk about game change in Washington, we tend to talk about the bickering staff on the Sarah Palin campaign. But there are some real game changers out there in global politics of the kind I'm about to mention. Think, for example, of the transformative possibilities of the new North American oil and gas boom. Maybe America won't actually become the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, as President Obama once said. But still, we're talking about a real game changer for American politics. And we are, in fact, uh, as new numbers out this week show, already the top energy producer in the world, displacing powerhouses like Saudi Arabia and Russia 
for the first time in the four decades since the Arab oil embargo that happened exactly 40 years ago this month. If that's not a game changer, I don't know what is. The rapid urbanization of the rest of the world, now already more than 50% of the world's population is in cities. So what does it mean as we anticipate a planet headed from 7 billion to 8 billion people? Think about this. More than 70% of the built environment in 2050 does not yet exist, at least according to one of my informants who's better informed on the subject. The choices we make now on in infrastructure and food, the kind of housing we want, the kind of cars that we drive, these are things that really will change the world. And by the way, this is a dramatic American trend too. America's cities are growing and increasingly its outer suburbs and its rural areas are being left behind in surprising new ways, in ways that will change our politics and already are fairly significantly. As of 2011, in fact, America's cities were growing faster than its suburbs for the first time since Americans were driving Ford Model Ts. There's going to be a new politics that comes along with the new geography of America. Already we're seeing that. Instead of the traditional divide between red states and blue states, we're seeing a much more complicated map emerge. In the 2012 presidential election, there was one sure way of understanding whether you were in a place that voted for Barack Obama or one that voted for Mitt Romney. If you were in a city of over one million people, it was pretty much a guarantee that it voted for Barack Obama because all American cities of that size, over one million people, voted for Obama. All cities that were smaller than that were either the contested territory on which the election was decided or Republican territory. Here's another trend I'd spotlight for you. The continuing emergence of a new global middle class, another game changer for global politics. If the big story of the last decade was the rise out of poverty of a billion people, fueled by the remarkable changes in China and Asia more broadly. Will this be the decade when Africa joins the party? Many are already betting on it. But then again, look at the carnage in Kenya at its upscale Westgate Mall just a few weeks ago, targeted by Al-Shabaab terrorists in a horrible carnage that represented the physical and actual convergence of that new Africa of rising middle class and economic opportunity along with the terrible grinding civil wars and security conflicts of a previous era's Africa policy. This will be a painful transition and pretty much the only thing we can be sure about is that there's no straight line. Predicting the future is a risky business. Uh, whether it's the future of the global middle class uh, or anything else. Just ask the National Intelligence Council, which not long ago came out with its widely anticipated report on global trends in 2030, only to find itself widely criticized for predictions that were either not out there enough or way too predictable. And remember, this is the group, after all, that predicted the collapse of North Korea and the reunification of the Korean Peninsula. By 2010, that is. How's that working out? Bob Gates, uh, who was not only the former head of the CIA, but of course the longtime head of the Defense Department under both President Bush and President Obama, had it right when he pointed out this fact not too long ago. The United States has had a pretty unbroken record since Vietnam when it comes to predicting where our next national security conflicts will come. 100%. 100% wrong, that is. <laughs> so please, I do uh, offer these, spirit, uh, these predictions in the spirit of uh, advising you uh, to take the appropriate grain of salt. I must say again, uh, as, as we turn back to the discussion that I started this lecture with this evening, which is the question of what's next for President Obama as he looks to take advantage of these diplomatic openings uh, at a time when the very nature of American power is under question, uh, when there are real uh, 
uncertainties about whether America has lost its ability to operate diplomatically uh, in a world that has gotten used to the militarization of foreign policy. We've become more comfortable uh, projecting our ideals and values uh, accompanied by the barrel of a gun in many ways than we have in sitting down in a room together with our adversaries or with partners who may or may not have our best interests at heart. And yes, I am referring to Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I think it, it represents a real challenge for Barack Obama as he thinks about the very kind of negotiating opportunities that he came to the White House back in 2008 determined to open up. Remember, it's been long forgotten because so much has happened since then, but Obama, one of his very first acts as president was to send a letter to the Iranian leaders uh, back in 2009, just after he was inaugurated. And he sent an official letter with Nauru's greetings, that's the uh, Iranian New Year in the spring, to the Iranian leadership and said, I'm gonna make good on my pledge to sit down and talk with uh, America's enemies as well as its friends. And I'm gonna find a way toward a common language. For the intervening five years, we have had almost no examples uh, of that being a pivot point, of that being the actual Obama doctrine, if you will. And so I'm, I'm particularly fascinated as someone who spends her time thinking about and writing about and observing up close the making of foreign policy to find us now in this moment when all of those things we know about Barack Obama will come into play at exactly the worst possible time. Because that's what happens. Events uh, dictate your foreign policy as well as your own preconditions. And I think that uh, if he could have dreamed up a moment when he could have both the opportunity of an opening with Iran at the very same time that the American Congress uh, and he are engaged in such uh, devastating non-negotiations uh, that the entire world uh, is looking on and wondering what to make of American democracy. Well, I mean, if I wrote that as, as a screenplay, you tell me, I think you better come up with something a little bit more realistic. American politics, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky it's nonfiction. <laughs> Uh, because uh, those of us who have the privilege of, of writing and thinking about it uh, couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, you, our audience, would not want us to. I'm very interested in taking all your questions and comments this evening, uh, and I want to thank you very much for allowing me to offer uh, my predictions and thoughts about uh, where foreign policy is headed with, I hope, the appropriate caveats and grains of thought. So thank you very much, and I'll look forward to your questions and comments. If you have questions, please get a card from one of the ushers, write your question quickly, and, and uh, give it back to the uh, ushers so that, that those can be uh, brought over here. Uh, while we're waiting for uh, questions uh, to come from the audience, uh, let me uh, first raise a question that comes from one of the students in the uh, Thompson Learning Community. Has the United States experience in Iraq and Afghanistan ended U.S. and Western ambitions for democracy promotion abroad? Well, that's a good question. This is not a particularly good week to be engaging in democracy promotion abroad. Uh, if anything, it's been an opportunity for a little bit of triumphal chest beating on the part of autocrats and tyrants everywhere. Uh, there was an article uh, in the Chinese news agency just the other day uh, predictably saying government shutdown shows fragility of American democracy. And I think there's a real concern uh, that uh, talking about democracy promotion, putting aside the question of our military presence in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan over the last decade, uh, it's, it's a very difficult time uh, for Obama or, or frankly any American leader to be making the case uh, that this is a special and higher form of government. 
Another question from another student in the Thompson Learning Community. Uh, did Obama make the right decision in seeking congressional approval regarding intervention in Syria? Well, that's a good question and, and define right. Uh, it certainly was a very controversial decision and also I would say pretty clearly it was politically uh, uh, not uh, a great call for President Obama. He came under a lot of criticism from his supporters both on the left as well as from people on the right. And I think uh, certainly it was a political mistake uh, for him regardless of what you think on the merits of his decision, it became very clear as soon as President Obama announced that while he was in favor of military action on Syria, that at the same time he believed he would go to Congress and seek its authorization, in just a few days it was very, very evident that Congress had no intention of going along with this and that the votes simply weren't there on either party to support doing that. The stomach uh, for any kind of military engagement overseas, even in the wake of a horrific chemical weapons attack, was virtually nil on Capitol Hill. So in that sense, uh, it was a failure. I think there are also very real questions from those who favor a strong executive about whether Obama was trading away some of the power of the presidency. Legally, uh, he has asserted that he wasn't required to go to Congress, but nonetheless that he was doing so. But I think that left the situation really very murky. Uh, and uh, if it weren't for that helping hand that uh, Vladimir Putin surprisingly offered uh, as a way out of the mess, I think Obama would have, would have suffered a very embarrassing defeat with Congress. Uh, please contrast President Obama's foreign policy with that of President George W. Bush. <laughs> well, you know, that's a very good question, and I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug here. My husband, uh, who covers the White House for the New York Times, is actually coming out with a big book about President Bush and Vice President Cheney in just a couple weeks, and uh, has a lot of thoughts on this subject. But I will say this. There's, in some ways, been much less difference between the foreign policies of Barack Obama and George W. Bush than you might imagine. That is the foreign policies of the second term of George W. Bush. And by that I mean a time when we were not invading Iraq, but trying to figure out how to repair and rebuild and mend uh, our relationship with Western allies that had been terribly frayed as a result of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, if you look at the roots of many of the policies in the Obama era, especially his national security policies, they have their origins uh, in actions taken by Bush and Condoleezza Rice, who was his second term Secretary of State. And so I think in, in some ways there's been a surprising consistency. Look at how both President Bush and President Obama were on the record as saying they wanted to close the prison at Guantanamo Bay, and neither one of them was able to figure out a way to successfully do that, even though, arguably, that was one of the uh, key policy promises that Barack Obama made uh, that helped get him elected to the White House in 2008. And so I think that's a reminder uh, and something that perhaps I should have emphasized even more in this lecture. But it's, it, it's a reminder that American policy, while shaped by individuals, and there's no question that as an individual, Barack Obama has a different set of concerns, of interests, a different background than that of George W. Bush. American foreign policy is also inevitably very much shaped by national interests. And the national interests of the United States don't change because we have an election every four years. Uh, and there's a real consistency in many ways as you look over the 200 year period of American foreign policy. Uh, there's a reason why we have uh, done certain things the way that we do them. And you know, one of the big realities of course of American foreign policy is that we are blessed with having two large oceans between us and the rest of the world. Uh, and that has given us the luxury uh, to do things like talk about the virtues of democracy and being a city on the hill that other countries haven't had. Let me combine a couple of questions. Uh, how does American and European economic weakness impact world politics 
Could you comment on President Obama's relation with the European Union? Well, you know, I'm so glad that uh, whoever brought that up brought that up because I, it's amazing to me how little attention the U.S. relationship with Europe gets. And I think this is very important to think about it. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time talking about the problem areas in the world, right? And I said that U.S. foreign policy right now could be summed up as the Middle East, the Middle East, and the Middle East. Well, Europe is our biggest trading partner in the overall. It is a core of our both economic uh, position in the world, but also, of course, it's our closest friend, ally, partner uh, in the world, and yet we all too often take it for granted. What's happened over the last five years since the financial crisis has been a wrenching, absolutely gut-wrenching period for the European Union when the entire foundation of the European Unity Project has come into question. And America has been more or less missing from that conversation in a way that I think has left Europe feeling quite bewildered and hurt and realizing that often they're taken for granted. Uh, even the announcement of the pivot to Asia, which no longer may or may not exist, uh, was greeted with, with great consternation in European capitals who immediately called Hillary Clinton uh, and the White House when the article appeared in Foreign Policy and said, you know, what do you mean you're pivoting to Asia? What, what about pivoting to Europe? Uh, you know, were you going to make a major strategic shift like, a, like this and not even consult your major friends and partners? Now, President Obama earlier this year did announce that he was going to begin a series of trade talks that would potentially lead to the creation of a U.S.-Europe free trade area and partnership uh, beyond which we've, we've ever had. That has the potential to be an enormous game changer for the world economy and for the American economy. But you don't hear very much about it, and the reason that you don't is because trade negotiations like that take years and years. Uh, if, if it ever happens, it will be long after the conclusion of the Obama presidency. And meanwhile, what are the headlines out of Europe once again? Uh, talking about a new round of negotiations on whether and on what terms to bail out Greece. Uh, you know, and so it goes. And uh, America, unfortunately, has not really been involved in helping Europe uh, to settle those basic questions about the economic partnership and the foundation of their union. And so I think, uh, you know, these are actually, it's a dangerous time uh, to ignore Europe and to, you know, take your friends for granted. We'll shift uh, across the Pacific. Now, this question comes from a Japanese student. Uh, Japan decided to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership in July, and this is quite big issue in my country. How much is the Trans-Pacific Partnership important for the United States? Well, you know, that is a very good question, too. And again, it, it's certainly not something that gets a lot of attention here in the United States. Uh, but the Trans-Pacific Partnership was one of the main reasons that uh, President Obama was supposed to be at the APEC summit this week. Uh, and one of the main things he was going to be touting at that summit if uh, Congress and gridlock had not intervened to cancel his trip. And, and the reason is that they have identified basically uh, an, an economic and a trade partnership that is also meant to be a key part of the new security architecture of the region. And the idea is that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next in the Asia-Pacific region, but clearly China, after this extraordinary several decade run of economic growth uh, is feeling much more assertive uh, and much more interested in projecting power beyond its borders in ways that it was not uh, through the period of this economic rise when it was really focused on domestic issues and that the United States was going to have to play a much more strategic game in the region if it was to maintain its position of preeminence. And it was going to have to work hard uh, and double down on relationships with close allies like Japan, 
uh, and it was going to have to build new partnerships and alliances with Vietnam, for example, where we've had uh, really a much renewed dialogue and conversation uh, as the Vietnamese have become increasingly concerned about the nature of China's rise. Uh, China is the historical uh, enemy of Vietnam and shares a long border with it. Uh, there's been uh, an accompanying unfreezing of relationships with the United States that are really pretty unprecedented. So again, a sort of long-winded way of saying our absence from the region, the lack of reality to the Asia pivot, uh, potentially undermined a lot of work that went into things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, and other efforts by American officials to build a new uh, security and economic architecture for our relations with Asia. Uh, this question touches on some of the same issues from a somewhat different perspective. Uh, will the BRICS nations use their power in the Asian market to shift power away from the United States as the global leader? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard a lot of conversation about the rise of the rest, uh, the, the BRICS, that's uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and actually officially the S became part of it a couple years ago with the addition of South Africa uh, to that group. However, as I, as I mentioned in my remarks, that growth by those emerging economies has started to slow over the last couple years. Uh, and there, of course, remain very serious political questions about whether India, China, uh, ha Russia, of course, whether they have the ability uh, to step up and play a global leadership role that would uh, potentially dislodge the United States from this position of preeminence. It does seem very clear uh, that China is likely to overtake the United States at some point uh, as the world's largest economy. But what kind of a leadership role it will play as a result of that is, is entirely unclear. And I think that um, one thing that we've seen so far is that uh, none of those countries uh, is currently wired in a way to step in to the vacuum that would be left by an America that pulled sharply back from the world. Uh, and I think you know, even these crises in the Middle East uh, in a way, are a powerful reminder of that, that as much as American leadership in the world is, is criticized and complained about, at the same time, when America is absent, what you tend to hear from leaders around the world is, where are you guys hiding? Uh, and can you please step in and, and help us deal with this terrible crisis, whether it is uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad's decision to fire chemical weapons at his own people. Uh, you know, there's no inherent reason. Obviously, he doesn't threaten us directly with those chemical weapons. And yet, at the same time, the world is used to an American leadership that goes beyond narrow self-interest uh, and defines itself as a guarantor in some way of international law, as, a, as, as, as the kind of country that one should turn to. There's no evidence to suggest that, that a Brazil or a Russia or an India would have any interest whatsoever uh, in taking on a leadership role the next time that a dictator chooses to use chemical weapons somewhere in the world that doesn't concern those countries. And in fact, all of them have a long record uh, stemming from Cold War times, from the legacy of colonialism, of actually saying we're adamantly against international intervention in other countries' affairs uh, in ways that have really, I think, hampered them from stepping in and playing more significant leadership roles on the global stage. Let me combine a couple of questions, one dealing with sanctions and the other with Iran. Uh, many boast about the effectiveness of sanctions. However, critics claim they only subjugate innocence. What do you think? Isn't the recent diplomatic opening in Iran mostly motivated by Iran's uh, economic issues? And to what extent, then, does the shutdown really impact uh, these negotiations? Uh, well, that is a very good and very timely set of questions. First of all, on sanctions, there is indeed, as, as the question pointed out, a, a very robust and to me, 
I think, unsettled debate over the effectiveness of sanctions. There is certainly a school of thought that says, look, the only reason why the Iranians have come to the table now is because we finally put in place a new series of economic sanctions that have taken such a bite out of the Iranian economy that have forced such pain that they've brought them to the table. Uh, and there's, there's certainly a very robust school of thought that believes that to be the case. On the other hand, there are those who say, you know, this is exactly the wrong approach to take. And I, I remember I was at a, um, a dinner last year uh, where I sat with um, F.W. de Klerk, who had been the last apartheid-era president of South Africa. And remember, he went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize along with Nelson Mandela uh, for basically affecting the peaceful transition of power to majority rule in South Africa. And it was, it was a fascinating dinner conversation. And he said to me, you know, I truly believe you Americans remain obsessed with sanctions. And uh, we're talking about Iran and the effectiveness of the sanctions there. And he said, you know, I'm convinced that the international sanctions led by American activists that uh, were imposed upon South Africa lengthened uh, the period of apartheid rule rather than hastening its demise. And so I think you do have a very real debate uh, about that. What exactly has brought the Iranians to the table now? Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to isolate any one single cause. I will say this, uh, President Rouhani, when he came to New York for the UN General Assembly in September, he, he met with a number of journalists, including me, and I was very struck by the fact that the economy and the economic conditions in Iran were a key part of his case for reform, for his case for why he was coming with such a different message, not only to the United States, but to the world. Um, and so I do think it would be a mistake to disregard the effect that those sanctions have had. Uh, the bite to the Iranian economy, the fact that Iran feels itself to be excluded from the civilized world. Basically, the message of sanctions is we're cutting you off. In a globalized world, we're not going to let you compete and be an equal partner in the community of nations. And I think uh, for a country with a long and proud historic tradition that sees itself at the center of its region, uh, to be cut off in that way, uh, certainly it bites both economically, but also I think in, in less tangible uh, psychological ways, it may well influence a decision by the Iranian people to try a different course now. Uh, has the United States made a mistake unilaterally in siding with democracy versus dictatorship in Iraq, Egypt, Syria, etc.? Well, that's an interesting question. There's a lot of assumptions to sort of unpack in it. Uh, you know, I think w one of the things I would say is that um, it's very hard to separate things out into such black and white notions. And I, I think Americans, in, in a positive sense, uh, like anybody else, we like stories that have good guys and bad guys, that have uh, black and white, that have clear-cut uh, narratives and happy endings. And I think we were so eager to see in the Arab awakening and the Arab spring, uh, you know, a story about good guys and bad guys that we were uh, quite blind to many of the other factors that would come into play. And of course, uh, you know, there were many s smart students of revolutions uh, who could tell you uh, that revolutions take a long time to play out. Uh, you remember the famous, uh, probably apocryphal remark of Chou Enlai uh, when asked about um, uh, the French Revolution. He said, well, we Chinese are waiting to see how it's, how it's going to end up. <laughs> so, you know, these are early days yet in the Middle East, but, but, but I do think even when it comes to this question of, you know, can America have a policy of supporting democracies and working against dictatorships, uh, you know, it's, it, it's very hard even there to have a clear-cut path through the messy realities of the world. And of course, we have a fairly shameful history in the Cold War of uh, disregarding entirely uh, things like democracy and human rights when we saw that it was to our advantage in our, in our global contest 
with the Soviet Union, and we certainly backed up many horrible dictatorships uh, and undermined many genuine democracies. Since the end of the Cold War, there's been more of a consensus uh, that we should uh, move away from uh, excusing uh, dictatorship and repression in our allies, and, and we have, uh, generally speaking, moved away from doing that, but that doesn't mean uh, we have exclusively done so. Uh, look at the help that we've received from Uzbekistan, one of the most repressive and brutal isolated countries in the world. Why? Is it because we like the government of Islam Karimov? Uh, is it because we support uh, the fact that he's pretty much massacred anybody who even pretended to say a prayer or grow a beard? No, of course not. It's because he happens to be strategically located right next to Afghanistan. And if you're going to invade Afghanistan, it's really helpful to have access to a bunch of w long runways at uh, well-made former Soviet military bases that happen to be right next door. Uh, and so those are the kinds of trade-offs that we are constantly making in American foreign policy and that, and that unfortunately are happening today. You hear a lot about the repressions uh, that have happened in Iran, for example, or in Syria. You don't hear very much about the crackdown uh, that's been happening in the Gulf state of Bahrain ever since the protests of the Arab Spring. Why not? Because the U.S. Fifth Fleet is headquartered there, and Bahrain is a very reliable ally of the United States in the region. And so again, uh, you know, we don't really have the kind of clear-cut foreign policy when it comes to being friends with democracies uh, and taking on dictatorships that, that you might think that the American uh, people would dictate. Uh, is the use of poison gas in Syria or in general categorically different from other types of warfare? Should the world's reaction be different? You know, this is a powerful question, obviously, and it gets right to the heart of uh, what our position should be in, in global affairs. Uh, you know, the tragedy of the civil war in Syria is that more than 100,000 people have died. Some subset of them have died through the use of chemical weapons, uh, including many innocent children and civilians. Uh, is, is the one kind of death more horrific or more meaningful than the others? That's a question I think that many Americans immediately had. Uh, and by the way, try explaining that to your eight-year-old son, uh, the difference between uh, these dead people who are 1,500 people and the other uh, 95,000 people. It's very hard to do on the one hand. On the other hand, there are uh, broad principles and when it comes to the use of weapons of mass destruction that I think there is not only a national interest but, but a global interest uh, in making clear uh, how very unacceptable this is. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, to both sides uh, of that debate because I think it's a pretty anguished conversation to be having. Uh, let me read two very similar questions to get the tone from the two people who wrote the questions. Uh, it's pretty easy to criticize from sidelines. What policy recommendations do you have for the litany of woes that have existed for all presidents that have come before? In the ideal case, where would you like to see Obama's foreign policy head in the remainder of his presidency? Well, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise what I would call a journalist privilege uh, and to say that it is undoubtedly more easy to criticize uh, than to advise. And uh, so I have a much less difficult job, uh, no question, than President Obama does. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm always very well aware of that. It's, uh, it's a lot easier to throw stones, uh, and that's something that journalists excel at. Uh, so I don't have a, a ready-made policy prescription for the president, I think that um, you know one thing we've seen that is, I think, important to note and important to observe is that President Obama uh, came into office with an unusually sweeping uh, rhetorical set of pledges and commitments about the kind of footprint he was going to have in the world, and I think he, uh, you know, perhaps inspired some people to think this this was really going to be something different, uh, but. Uh, I would say to you that you're always going to be on safe ground uh, if when somebody promises to you that they're going to stop the rise of the seas uh, and 
you know, make the entire planet a better place, uh, that there might be a little bit of uh, campaign rhetoric involved in that, and that it's, it's always best to look skeptically on uh, sweeping claims for transformation offered by politicians, no matter how appealing uh, of a garb they are cloaked in. Uh, so I guess that's why I'm a journalist and not a policymaker. How would you go about getting the American people to take to heart the importance of foreign affairs with such economic troubles at home? Well, you know, I think the question really suggests part of the challenge and part of the problem. If you frame foreign policy, if you frame the world uh, as somehow in conflict with our needs at home, if you think of it as a zero-sum game, uh, then you're likely to make one set of choices. Uh, in reality, if you look at the way our world functions today, look at how global a state like Nebraska is uh, in ways that are absolutely transformed uh, from what its economy was uh, less than a generation ago. Uh, Nebraska has connections to, to so many countries and to so many parts of the world that are dependent on its even its agriculture in, in ways that were literally unthinkable. Uh, just just a few years ago. And so I think it's, it, it's really a kind of binary thinking that in many ways probably limits uh, the American political conversation around foreign policy. And I think it really hampers it. You know, one of the classic tests of this is if you ask people uh, anywhere in America, uh, it, well, you know, are you, how do you feel about American foreign aid? Uh, and, and they've done studies of this. First of all, uh, Americans will not only get wrong how much foreign aid we give, but wildly so. And I, I actually saw this happen once on, on, on a train. I happened to be listening to people who were having a big argument about uh, America and its place in the world. And, you know, I could tell the guy was sort of a, a Washington insider type. So he says to this woman, well, you know, how much aid do you think, you know, foreign aid do we really give to other countries? And of course, you know, what percentage of our budget is that? And sure enough, she said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's it's 30% or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, now, of course, the real answer is is less than 1% uh, of our budget. And, and I think, again, it suggests uh, what a what an incomplete conversation uh, and inaccurate conversation we often have about foreign policy. But, but to me, at its heart, the problem is when you think of it as a choice uh, between being engaged in the rest of the world and taking care of our business here at home. I, I, I think that's a dangerous uh, way of approaching the subject because it's not a choice. First of all, you don't get to make that choice. We live in the world uh, whether you want to be there or not. And second of all, uh, what we do globally affects what we do here at home and vice versa, by the way, as we're seeing uh, with Congress this week. I've saved one question for last, uh, but before I ask that question, you know, let me invite everyone here tonight to uh, return to the LEAD Center uh, for the next Thompson Forum lecture uh, entitled, uh, Who Stole the American Dream? Uh, by Hedrick Smith. Uh, this will be on Wednesday, November the 6th uh, at seven o'clock. Uh, the question is, uh, you mentioned a growing global middle class at a time when the middle class in America is getting squeezed. Uh, is there a relationship between the two? So I'll let you answer that, and that will be a wonderful segue uh, to Hedrick Smith's uh, lecture at the next uh, Thompson Forum uh, uh, next month. All right, well, since we're doing uh, public service announcements, I'll say absolutely go to Rick Smith's, and I'll give you, uh, by way of answering that question, a little bit of a sneak preview uh, of uh, my new Politico magazine, and one of the articles that we're working on uh, for the very first issue, which will be out in a few weeks, uh, is about the rise of the robot economy and how is that going to uh, affect the American middle class and you know uh, America more broadly. And I and I think it raises some very provocative questions that will apply uh, to those who expect rising standards of living, both globally uh, with this growing middle class and also here in the United States, is it reasonable to expect that we can continue to have the extraordinary uh, 
kinds of jobs and, and growth in our economies that we've had over the previous century of industrialization at a time when this new automation, this new age of smart machines is really on us. And guess what? The next set of robots is not just going to be taking jobs from factory workers or from unskilled labor. Uh, they're making a robot anesthesiologist. Uh, that's a six-figure job uh, that, that the robot is going to take over. Uh, they are, you know, they have robots now uh, that can wash your hair, that can give you your fast food uh, burger, fulfill your order. Uh, but they also have, uh, I think, we're coming to a phase when big data and smart machines and the overall automation of our economy really is going to make structural changes that, that call into question uh, the future of a middle class here in the United States as well as internationally in, in some pretty significant ways uh, that we haven't seen over the last few generations. So I, I'm not a pessimist. In, in fact, by nature, I'm very much of a, a glass half full person. Uh, technology has also provided solutions to many of our challenges in recent years. And I think this North American energy boom that I mentioned is a good example where just a few years ago it would have been absolutely unthinkable uh, to talk about the United States being energy independent, to talk about uh, the growth of um, uh, American industry that would flow from this outpouring of uh, cheaper natural gas and uh, new energy resources here at home. So, um, you know, I'm not convinced that, you know, we're on the straight line to the robot overlords, uh, you know, taking away all our jobs or anything. Uh, but I do think that there's some very big structural changes uh, which do call into question and perhaps suggest that we're headed for a period of even more uh, economic inequality uh, than the period we've just been through. Uh, and that's going to put new stresses and new strains on a political system that clearly is proving itself to be not, not super resilient when it comes to handling uh, stresses and strains. But I thank you again uh, for these terrific questions, uh, and I'm looking forward to my return to Nebraska. Thank you very much.